0: Uh, the reading, if you're reading from the Church uh, Pure Bibles, is on page 709. So we're just starting Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designated them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boangus, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alpha- Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus mother and brothers arrived standing outside they sent someone in to call him a crowd was sitting around him and he told them you are my mother and brothers Uh, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you who are my mother and my brothers he asked then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said here are my mother and my brothers whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother
1: Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this uh, accurate account of uh, the ministry of Jesus in Mark's gospel. And we do pray now that you'd help us to focus on what you're saying to us in your word and that we would have uh, minds that are attentive and teachable and hearts that are flexible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard Dawkins claims to be a fan of Jesus. Does that surprise you? Yes, yeah, especially given that he's one of the world's most high-profile atheists. But uh, listen to what Richard Dawkins said about Jesus. He said, and I quote, Jesus was a charismatic young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness who must have seemed radical to the point of subversion. No wonder they nailed him, end of quote. Uh, Like a lot of people, uh, Richard Dawkins uh, claims, although I think it's probably tongue-in-cheek, he claims to admire Jesus. Uh, He loves his teaching about forgiveness. He uh, really respects the fact that Jesus was a man who was prepared to stand up to the authorities and to challenge them and to expose their hypocrisy. But what about all that stuff that Jesus had to say about God? I mean, you know, where does it sort of fit into this, you know, admiration society of Jesus? Well, Dawkins says, and I quote, Of course Jesus was a theist. Um, That's a person who believes in the existence of God. Of course Jesus was a theist, uh, but that is the least interesting thing about Jesus Uh, He was a theist because in his time, everybody was. Atheism was not an option, even for so radical a thinker as Jesus, end of quote. So in one breath, he's very friendly towards Jesus. Uh, In the next breath, he totally dismisses Jesus and everything that Jesus actually stood for. Um, These days, I think it's quite fashionable for people to say, I like Jesus, I mean, he's Jesus is a pretty cool kind of guy. Jesus is the, he, he said some really amazing things which have inspired uh, us throughout history. And he was a, a great example, wasn't he? He was a tremendous example of sacrifice. And so Jesus is a really cool guy and lots of people say that they like Jesus. But when it comes to the things which matter most about Jesus, you know, like for example that claim that he made that he is God... Well, uh, you know, that's just a myth. That's just a, a story that someone made up um, to get us to believe certain things. And what we see in this is that, you see, it's not simply enough to say, I believe in Jesus or I love Jesus. Or I think Jesus is really cool. Uh, what the real issue is what people actually think and say about who Jesus is and why he came. That's the critical issue. And it's always been an issue. It was the the, the uh, dividing issue at the time of Jesus when Jesus was uh, preaching around the Sea of Galilee and in and around the town of Capernaum in the countryside as we've uh, seen throughout our uh, series in Mark's Gospel. Now, today we come to Mark chapter 3 if you'd like to have that open up in front of you. And there is an outline of the uh, talk in your bulletins, by the way. And in Mark chapter 3, Um, Mark paints a picture for us of the the massive impact that Jesus was having. Um, We see it uh, in verses 7 and 8, if you care to take a look at that. Let me read verses 7 and 8 for you. We're told, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, uh, pause there. I want to uh, just—it's uh, <clears throat> very easy to uh, to gloss over those verses and to miss the point of what's being said. Uh, remember, Jesus is he's in Galilee, which is, is up north. Uh, and what, what, what this is saying is that uh, the, the, the news about Jesus had spread uh, vast distances because we're told there that people have come from uh, Judea and Jerusalem, that's, that's way down south uh, in the country. Uh, we're told that they've come from Idumea, that's international, that's uh, over the border, that's further south than uh, Jerusalem and, and Judea. Uh, we're told that they've come from, um, from across the, uh, the Jordan, so that's, that's way out west. Uh, we're told that people have come from Tyre and Sidon as well, and that's way up in the northeast. That's, that's international. That's in you know, what we'd call Lebanon uh, these days. And so that the, paint, the picture that's being painted there is that, uh, that news about Jesus has spread like wildfire. And uh, people are flocking from all over the, uh, not just Israel but internationally across the borders, they're flocking uh, to Galilee to, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus uh, speak, to uh, perhaps be healed by Jesus and so on. And, uh, and so it's a massive impact uh, that Jesus is having and that's what Mark is portraying for us in those two verses. And what, what, um, uh, that, that, uh, that it, it kind of helps us to see uh, that um, this was just not some localised thing that was happening. And it's no wonder that therefore uh, with those kind of crowds, with that kind of reputation, with that kind of fame, that there was a certain amount of controversy about Jesus. And uh, particularly uh, on the, the key question, of who is this man? Who is he? Uh, What's he on about? And in the passage that we're looking at today, we see that there are three things which are said, three key things which are said, about the identity of Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to just take us through those three uh, main views about the uh, person of Jesus. Um, So first of all, in verses 11 and 12, there were some who said that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, from where you and I stand, uh, we, we'd want to say, I'm into that, wouldn't we? <clears throat> we'd say, they're the ones who got it right about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. But who are the ones? <laughs> who are the ones who said that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, if you look closely at it, it's they're actually evil spirits who said that. Now, among the crowd that followed Jesus, there were some people who uh, were possessed by demons. Now, a couple of weeks back we looked at this in more detail when we looked at uh, chapter 1, the whole concept of uh, demon possession. And uh, we, uh, amongst other things, saw that... uh, demon possession is something which is very real. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's not not simply ancient man's uh, attempts to, uh, to, to explain mental illness or epilepsy. Uh, one of the things which we see throughout Mark's Gospel is that the evil spirits would actually speak uh, to Jesus. And, uh, and that's what we see here. <clears throat> um, some of the scholars say that in the demonic world, that to know someone's name and to know something about the, the character and the power of that person uh, would give the evil spirits some degree of power to control that person. And, uh, and so what we see here is a futile attempt by the evil spirits to control Jesus um, by blurting out what they know about him. And not surprisingly, uh, because they are spirits, they get it right. They say, you are the son of God. Now, Jesus orders them to stop saying this. And this is uh, a a bit of a feature uh, throughout Mark's gospel. Why would Jesus command the evil spirits to to keep their mouths shut about who he is? There's a number of different views on this, and uh, we see that one of the (laughs) issues in Mark's Gospel is that uh, Jesus doesn't want the opposition to amount against him uh, too quickly. But I think that there's another issue here, and I suspect that it is because Jesus wants God to be the one who reveals Jesus' identity to people. Think about... um, Remember when Peter came to his conclusions about jesus remember when uh, jesus was talking to the disciples and he said well who do the people say that i am and they said well some say that you're john the baptist others say that you're elijah some say that you're the prophet and jesus eyeballs them and says all right who do you say that i am and what does peter say peter says you are the christ the son of the living god and jesus says i tell you the truth that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you Uh, But this has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And it seems to me that there's this idea that uh, Jesus wants uh, it to be God, the Father, who reveals his identity to people, uh, not Satan, not evil spirits blurting it out of a poor man whom they have possessed. Now, the other interesting thing about this issue here is that it does remind us that simply believing in Jesus, even believing the correct things about Jesus, is is not enough. Um, Demons believe in Jesus. Uh, In James chapter 2, James tells us that, that, that demons believe true things about God and they shudder. And well, they should shudder. Because believing things about God, believing things about Jesus is not enough. Actually trusting in God, trusting in Jesus and obeying Jesus uh, is what it all boils down to. That's what truly matters and that is what they do not do and therefore they ought to shudder at the judgment which awaits them. Now secondly, um, in verses 20 and 21, uh, there are some people who said that Jesus was mad that he was, he was out of his mind. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had retreated back to a house, and presumably because they needed rest, they needed shelter. Uh, they needed to eat as well. They needed food. But um, the crowd just just followed them. And so we're told that they didn't even get to eat uh, any food. Some of Jesus' family back in Nazareth had heard about what was going on in Galilee and they were concerned. Uh, we're not told explicitly why they were, what they were concerned about. They might have been concerned that Je- they'd heard Jesus wasn't looking after himself, that he wasn't eating properly, that he wasn't sleeping properly, that the crowds were following him and so on. And they were concerned for his well-being and uh, it, we're told that they thought that he was out of his mind, that uh, he's... Uh, They mistook his zeal for the work that the father had given him for being an obsession, for being crazy. And so they decided to go and collect him, bring him back home, look after him. Notice who it was who came to collect him, if you have a look at verse 31. Uh, In verse 31, uh, verse 32 rather, we're told that it was his brothers and his, what does it say? Brothers and his? And his mother. And uh, see, clearly this is, this is wrong. What, you, you can understand a mother's concern for the well-being of her son, but uh, as for Mary being free of any sin, as some claim that she is, here she clearly got it wrong. Uh, she came to collect Jesus because, uh, even if she didn't think he was out of her, his mind, she uh, didn't have the, uh, uh, the fortitude to actually say to the sons, no, don't go and collect him. He's doing the will of his father. So some people thought that uh, Jesus was um, was mad and that was his family. It's interesting, isn't it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that, uh, uh, it seems that some people thought that the apostle Paul was mad as well because he says if we are, uh, out of our minds, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right minds, it's for your sake. And sometimes our zeal for the work of the gospel might be considered by others to be madness. Uh, but that is a mistake. That's a mistake. And that uh, was a big mistake with respect to Jesus. Now, thirdly, in verses 20 to 30, there was the religious leaders And they said that Jesus, well, he wasn't mad. Uh, They said that he was bad. They said that Jesus was possessed by an evil spirit. Have a look at verse 22. Let me read it for you. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. Now what are they saying about Jesus? They're saying that he's satanic. Uh, the word Beelzebub comes from Baal worship. Um, the word originally is Baal Zebub, and uh, it means Lord of the Flies. Uh, so they're, they're saying that it's by the power of the Lord of the Flies that He's doing. They're not saying that um, they're not accusing Jesus of being a magician. You know, they're not just saying all these miracles that you see. It's all just sort of you know smoke and mirrors you know, that it's all a, a con. No, then they're not saying that. They're saying that it's real, what's going on, The demons are being driven out, that sick people are being healed. They're saying it's real, but they, they, they are saying that it is the spirit of Satan which is at work in Jesus. Now, that's not a comment that Jesus is just going to let go through to the keeper uh, because, you know... Uh, What people say about Jesus really does matter. And so he responds to that. Firstly, in verses 22 to 27, Jesus simply says, look, what you are saying just doesn't make any sense. If I am driving out Satan by the power of Satan, then Satan is involved in some kind of a civil war. Satan is destroying himself. Why would Satan be doing that? That is just dumb. To say that I'm driven by the spirit of Beelzebub. In fact, far from being empowered by Satan, look at what Jesus says in verse 27. In verse 27, uh, in verse 27, Jesus says, uh, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. Uh, strange thing for Jesus to say on the surface, but what he's saying here is that the kingdom of God uh, has uh, intruded upon the kingdom of the evil one, that the kingdom of God is at hand and that there is a clash between these two kingdoms and that by driving out demons, uh, Jesus is, is showing his victory over Satan that he is plundering the strong man's household because he is more powerful than Satan. But they'd already made up their mind that Jesus was satanic, that his power was from Satan. It's actually a statement which I think in some respects is helpful because it helps to clarify the issue. See, there is no debate about whether or not these miracles took place. Uh, The debate is by whose power. there's only two choices. It is either by the power of the evil one or it is by the power of God. And uh, every person needs to make up their mind about that. It's one or the other uh, and there's no room to sit on the fence. I think it's the same these days. I actually don't know anyone who I can't recall having heard anyone say that Jesus was satanic. I think I've heard some atheist philosophers challenge the view that he was perfectly good. I think I've heard that. You know, like why did he go and destroy that poor fig tree that wasn't doing anyone any harm? That sort of, how could you follow someone who does something like that, capricious? Uh, but I haven't heard anyone saying that Jesus was satanic. There are plenty of people who, though, claim to believe in Jesus, but they say that the miracles just never happened or that Jesus is not God. Um, one of those people, for example, would be uh, a bishop. There's a bishop. Some of you might have heard of him. His name's John Shelby Spong. Heard of him? All right, so he, he sells books by the truckload and he claims to be a follower of Jesus. So let's listen to what he says about Jesus uh, on his website. He says this, number one, the virgin birth, understood as literal biology, makes Christ's divinity, as traditionally understood, impossible. And he says Jesus is not God. Right? Um, of course, if it, if you're just referring to literal biology, <laughs> It's not actually saying that. The virgin birth doesn't necessarily say that. It doesn't say that. Anyway, point two. Uh, The miracle stories of the New Testament can no longer be interpreted in a post-Newtonian world as supernatural events performed by an incarnate deity. So there's no miracles. Um, Point three. The view of the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of the world is a barbarian idea based on primitive concepts of God and must be dismissed. So he's saying there's no atonement. I've heard other uh, church leaders uh, say that the, the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for, to pay for the sins is cosmic child abuse. Uh, it's a statement by a church leader. So they don't believe in the, that there's any need for sins to be atoned for. Now, the religious leaders who stalked Jesus, they said that the miracles were satanic. I think that their 21st century brothers say that the miracles just, they just didn't happen at all. It's the same thing in the end, isn't it? They're just dismissing Jesus. Now, uh, in verses 28 to 29... Jesus goes on to say some things which have have troubled Christians. Um, have a look at verse 28. Verse 28. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. How about that, eh? Jesus is saying that there is one sin which can never be forgiven, which is an eternal sin. Some Christians, this has caused a bit of a problem because they think, well, if the blood of Jesus covers all sins, well, how can there be one sin that it doesn't cover? Um, There was a lady in a church I used to be pastor of who was tormented by this. Um, She was concerned that she might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit uh, in her earlier life. And she just wasn't sure where she stood in relation to this particular verse. Um, There's been some Christians I've heard have used this verse against other Christians. You know, if you don't believe certain things about the Holy Spirit, then you're blaspheming uh, the Holy Spirit and you don't want to do that because that's an eternally unforgivable sin and so on. Um, And I've heard that in terms of, you know, rejecting what they say about uh, what they claim is speaking in tongues. But what is Jesus really saying here? Well, firstly, I think it's helpful for us to define blasphemy. Uh, To blaspheme means to speak in a way that uh, very defiantly rejects God and his power. So it's to use words to reject the the power of God and to reject God. That's blasphemy. Um, But secondly, I think context is important here as well because Jesus has just been accused of being filled with an evil spirit. Um, now, let's think about that for a moment. Remember what happened to Jesus when he was baptised. He was baptised in, in uh, Chapter 1. And when Jesus was being baptised in the Jordan River, uh, he went down under the water. When he came back out of the water, uh, two things happened. Uh, number one, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. It was visible. Number two, a voice from heaven spoke and said, you are my son, Uh, in you I am well pleased. We saw when we looked at Mark 1 that uh, that is very rich uh, in Old Testament prophecy, uh, particularly from Psalm 2, where uh, God announces his king, his anointed one, who he has established on Zion, his holy hill, and that uh, you ought to worship him, you ought to obey him uh, and take refuge in him because he is God's king. Even the kings of the earth need to bow their knee to him. And so uh, that is uh, Jesus, by his baptism, by the spirit Uh, Descending on him is the affirmation from God that Jesus is just no ordinary person, that he is God's son, that he is God's promised king, the anticipated Messiah, the Christ. And so to claim that Jesus is filled with an evil spirit is therefore to reject the truth that he actually has the Holy Spirit and and to speak against that is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Can you see why that is the unforgivable sin? It is the unforgivable sin because it involves rejecting Jesus. It involves rejecting who he is, the anointed one of God. Whereas those who accept Jesus, not just in their heads like the evil spirits but in their hearts, they are the ones who receive forgiveness For Jesus is the only one who can give forgiveness through his death on the cross. So to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because it is to reject Jesus. The very nature of being forgiven means that we accept Jesus. Now finally, um, in verses 13 to 19, there's another group of people that Mark tells us about. And that is the the 12 men whom Jesus appointed to be apostles. I'm not going to say much about uh, this section, but it's interesting to note that one of those 12 men was one whom Satan actually did enter, and that's Judas. And in entering Judas, Judas uh, betrayed Jesus, which led to the cross. Whereas the other apostles, whilst they took time to sort out who Jesus actually was, um, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, they spent their lives preaching and teaching the great truths about Jesus, that he is God's son, that he did die, that he rose again, and that through him God offers forgiveness to all who turn to him in faith. You see, uh, it's simply not enough for someone to say, I believe in Jesus. It's what we believe about Jesus and what we say about Jesus that truly matters. Um, over the last week or so, I've been, I've listened to a few of the, um, you, know, you know the uh, denominational leaders go on TV and you know, give their kind of Christmas message it's sort of like, you know, the Queen does the same kind of thing, sort of thing. You get the denominational leaders doing giving their Christmas. And it's a great, it's the one time in the year when the, the media is actually interested in the message that we've got. And they give us freedom to actually share that message. It's great, isn't it? The media's listening. That means that the world is listening to hear the church leaders deliver their Christmas messages. I've had, I've heard a few. Some have been okay. Uh, some have been left me feeling a bit cold, actually. Uh, there was one church leader. He was a, he's a leader of a major Australian denomination. He delivered his message, and in a very beautifully edited and packaged um, media clip, he spoke for three minutes. You wish I'd speak for only three minutes occasionally, wouldn't you? Eh? He spoke for only 3 for 3 full minutes and he mentioned the name of Jesus how many times do you reckon Well it wasn't 0 he mentioned the name of Jesus once once he mentioned Jesus at the beginning and then he said something about Jesus which was totally unbiblical then he moved on to the bulk of his message for the next uh, remainder of the 3 minutes He spoke words which could have come from the mouth of any caring non-Christian. Even an atheist could have said the things that he said. Christmas is a time for families. It's a time for looking out for your neighbour. It's a time for thinking about how you can contribute and so on. The one time in the year when the media is listening and actually wants to hear our message about Jesus and what happens? Jesus is minimised to one word and he's portrayed as being a teacher of morality uh, and that by a religious leader. It was the kind of Jesus that an atheist like Richard Dawkins could say, yep, I'm a fan of that kind of Jesus. That's the guy who I admire. Just a great moral teacher who advocated generous forgiveness. You know, Cassie and I had a friend who uh, loved reading the Bible and she loved praying every day. And she said that she believed in Jesus. Uh, But as we got to know her better we came to the realisation that she she didn't know Jesus at all that uh, in fact that she rejected the Jesus of the Bible because she rejected what the Bible said about Jesus being God. She said he's an inspiring man I love his teaching I get inspired when I read the Bible in the morning it helps me get through the day but as for this idea that Jesus is God no, thank you. Now, we could have said, well, never mind. Um, you know, she may say some wrong things about Jesus, but, you know, her heart's in the right place. But no, her heart was not in the right place. You see, it is out of the heart that, uh, you know, that, 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 that from, from our heart flows out what we say and what we say about Jesus and her heart was in the wrong place and that mattered, that mattered enormously, that mattered eternally. So we just kept on gently, Cassie would meet with her and gently just press the point about Jesus not just being a great moral teacher but in fact being God in the flesh who came to die for sin. Not sure if she accepted that or not before she died, can't say that for sure. But friends, uh, we need to do that, don't we? Because these days people, you know, they don't accuse Jesus of being satanic or being mad, but they simply dismiss Jesus as being a great moral teacher, but not God. And You and I need to see that for what it is and we need to urge people to change their view on Jesus and to repent and to to believe in the Jesus who he says that he is. God the Son, come for us. So let's pray about that, shall we? Father, we do thank you again for this account of uh, Jesus' life and ministry from Mark's Gospel. Father, we thank you that uh, you... Love this world so much that you did send your own son and that you anointed him as king of of creation. Father, we thank you that he lived amongst us and that indeed that he died for us and rose again. May we be people who put our trust in the Jesus that you have revealed, the Jesus of the Bible. Father, we pray that we would be bold uh, in proclaiming him And we pray that you would turn the hearts of men and women, that they would uh, understand who he is and respond to him in faith and obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.